0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now, stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett, and I'll be with you until six this evening. On the program today, Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees and Propaganda for War. With Nakba approaching, I spoke with two Palestinian women, Noura Mansour and Dana Shaya. Alison Brinovsky talks about her dear friend who died last month, Bruce Haig, John Kurupel, also on War Propaganda, and then part two of the history of Ecuador in South America with Sasha Kellys lakagas Mr. Kevin Healy, and here he is with his week that was.
2: A week, Jan, listener, when this afternoon we'll join the mainstream media which has been delivering blanket coverage of the greatest event most of us will live through, the coronation of our head of state. But first... A couple of very mundane and prosaic items by comparison. Interesting that the way the use of a word can change its meaning to its opposite. Mundane, literally worldly but now expressing the opposite. Just thought I'd throw that in because there's nothing mundane about King Big Ears unlike the week that was. But Let's give ourselves a pat on the back, because last week we were spot on. Our prediction that after the wall-to-wall coverage of Train Killer Celebration Day would come wall-to-wall non-coverage of May Day. Unless there was violence somewhere between workers and the uh, police. And right on cue, the only coverage how violent workers attacked the poor, gentle constabulary in France. Well, there were truly important, much more important matters to cover like a publicly funded Tasmanian footy team. And of course, the ubiquitous fashion week or whatever is this week's truly vital fashion event. Always featuring the in-depth interview with a model who tells us how much she just loves the event and the color and the social elite in the front row and the exciting fashion label. And the Reserve Bank stuck it up, working families with a mortgage again, and the banks accommodated the sticking it up by sticking it up for mortgagees, but not sticking it up for depositors, because that seems to be much more difficult to calculate. And the Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, announced record profits and celebrated with its lazy average workers by announcing it was sacking, or sorry, sadly having to let go, 230 of them. What thanks! God, imagine if they hadn't made a huge profit. Many sadly let-go workers in anti-scam and fraud teams, whom they obviously don't need, because the finance Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission showed the witch bank, which used to be, well, all our highly respected and respectable banks know all about scams and frauds. And the danger with the scams and frauds workforce is one might get a conscience and become a whistleblower. And the northern True Blue Aussie socialists approved fracking in the Beetaloo Basin, flashing the environment down Alu, not needing a referendum to ignore the voice of the local indigenous people who obviously oppose progress and threw up irrelevant arguments like it will destroy their country. And environmental groups complained, but they would, wouldn't they? Arguing that fracking will release at least 22 million tonnes a year of emissions. Scope 1, not counting Scope 2 and 3 contributions. But, apart from these naysayers, the really exciting news was that the share prices of santosas, the profits and other great resource companies doing this for the good of all of us soared. Shareholders dancing in the streets. Better than dancing where they, where they might fall down a, a big fracking hole. And the Northern Trouble Aussie Socialist Supremo Natasha Files the Objections said direct quote, Now is the time for the Northern Territory to provide the energy that the world needs to transmission to renewable energies. Let's repeat that, because we can't satirise it. Now is the time for the Northern Territory to provide the energy that the world needs to transition to renewable energy. Huh? And one resource supremo, also direct quote, said, The Beetaloo will play an important role in providing the Northern Territory, Troubluwazi, and the Asian region energy security for decades indicating the transition could take a little while at 22 million tonnes a year. And a McDonald's salt, sugar and fat fat franchise in South Troublesse admitted it had conducted an unlawful five-year campaign to de-unionise its workforce, barring union members from promotion and threatening to cut permanent workers' hours unless they shifted to casual employment. One worker admitting she resigned from the union after, quote, "...ruthless threats." but then had her hours slashed anyway because she raised a safety issue. Fair enough. She clearly threatened the safety of shareholders' dividends. Uh, After all, if every worker raised every safety issue, what would that do for productivity? And it's not like caring employers like McDonald's, salt, sugar and fat, don't care about safety. Well, apart from the uh, safety of the customers devouring the salt, sugar and fat. And a week earlier, big Supremo Anthony all being Uzi attended a men's only birthday bash for one of True Blue Aussie's filthiest rich of the filthy rich, Lindsay Foxy, a beneficiary of much government largesse, socialising with the filthiest rich of, and no doubt explaining to them the error of their ways. Oh, and he told us the government can't afford to assist the poorest of the poor. After all, we have to find that $38 a day for 30 years to protect us with nuclear-trained killer thingies. Although a report this week said that may be 50% under the real figure, 57 mil a day. So how can we possibly afford to assist the poorest of? And then Anthony attended the wedding of an extreme-right, nasty-nasty shock jock, no doubt alluding the acolytes of the filthiest rich, the wannabes, of the error of their ways, while telling us the government can't afford to assist the poorest of. And then Anthony dropped into Brisbane to wish workers a happy May Day, a true socialist, while telling them the government can't afford to assist the poorest of. We've got that 38 mil a day, but maybe we can help the poorest of by turning them into cannon fodder dropped in on his way to the big event in London to swear allegiance to our king. Amid the massive, filthiest rich of opulence on display reminding us, the government can't possibly afford to assist the poorest of. But what a comforting thought for the poorest of. Long to reign over us. Doesn't that give us a feeling of security, knowing big ears in London will long reign over us? God save the king, because with his most gracious and God, what could go wrong? And Anthony visited a shipyard where they build the nuclear thingies and told us they would provide thousands of jobs and transform the true Lewazi economy like the car industry, which some spoilsport train-killer economists said was crap though not sure we needed to be told. And we asked Anthony if he had considered building things that don't kill people, and he told us that was silly and threatened through security. And reports this week, the architect of the Fork's groveling deal, former big supremo scummo, was about to get a job in His Most Gracious Majesty's home country's nuclear subs industry, joining a queue of those serving the merchants of death who have been rewarded by the merchants of death. And as the commemorations of injured and murdered workers received equal non-coverage with May Day, the state socialist government got into the spirit of the solemn occasion by preparing to announce it would exclude workplace problems like stress, overwork, anxiety, from work cover because it needs to save money so it can remove level crossings and make cars go faster and find lots of money for non-public housing. And that 15% wage rise for aged care workers will boost the public spending on aged care to about $30 billion. But at least, we chatted with big economic guru Jim Chalmers' capital, it will be publicly controlled, publicly owned. Uh, no, no, that, that's not right. Jim corrected us. It will continue to be run by the private sector. Uh, then why is the public purse picking up their wages bill? Efficiency, that the private sector can't afford to pay workers and contribute the important service it provides. Uh, then why is it involved? Well, profit, silly. Profit, but, but you said they can't even afford to pay their workers. Well, you can't have both. It's one or the other, and they've chosen the other, or or the one, whichever. uh, Right, right. And don't forget, the 30 bill also includes the cost of raising standards as recommended by the aged care inquiry. Hang on, the the government is paying to raise standards for the private owners. Obviously, the private sector can't afford wages and raising the standards and making a profit. Um, So it chose one of the three. Yeah, now you got it. Uh, Thanks, Jim. That's obviously the free bit of free enterprise. But poor aged care caring employers, although if they're not actually paying the wages, are they the caring employer? Never mind. The caring employers do have one big worry despite all this public largesse. See, moves to restrict the number of hours student visa holders can work will limit the aged care caring employers giving them a job out of the goodness of their dear, warm hearts. Even though the Spencer Street Falfax no longer Falfax reported this week, student visa holders are heavily relied upon to fill low-paid care roles. What a slur, as if the sector would use public funds to exploit workers, or more correctly, as few of them public funds, that is, as possible, and so they are lobbying the government to give them a break and retain their pool of labour so they, they so care about. Restricting the hours they could exploit or, sorry, no, no, rip off or, no, no, sorry, provide them with work would devastate aged care, they said. The government's just not doing enough for them. It would be silly, of course, for the government to run the sector itself. Gross inefficiency. No, just pay for it. But hang on, that's enough of the mundane and prosaic. Now, finally, our blanket coverage of the great event. Our head of state... Sorry, what's that, Jan? Time's up, but but I've got oh sorry listener, blame Jan, but I hope we all chorus our allegiance too. good
1: afternoon and more of Kevin and his friends tomorrow morning at nine a m with city limits <laughs>
4: Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377.
5: Thank you, 3CR. We love you.
1: At the weekend, I spoke with Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees. Stuart, we're going to talk about the Declassified Defence Strategy Review. But before that, AUKUS. Albanese is in the UK at the moment. Said you have visited the facility where subs are being built. You described AUKUS as basically based on deception and maintenance of public ignorance. Explain how you've come to those conclusions. It's a
3: technique in economic, social, foreign policy of governments over the years that if you maintain the public in a state of ignorance, you can proceed with, you know, unpalatable policies, offensive policies. So, in a way, the limited knowledge that the public have about this AUKUS agreement and how it was... uh, arrived at is consistent with this what at worst i'd call deceit and at best it's just plain old bureaucratic political secrecy even the recent report that um, we pay large sums to retired uh, united states military officials to advise us that's only recently come come to light and then there's all the details about the development of the Northern Territory as an American base in preparation for a war is probably unknown to most of the Australian public. That's the consequences of uh, the secrecy.
1: Is it any worse now than it ever was?
3: Well, I wouldn't be able to judge whether it was worse. I mean, I recall that Menzies, when he was Prime Minister, said to the British when they wanted somewhere to test their atomic, atomic bombs over indigenous territory in Malaralinga, let's just go ahead. You can, we're basically said, you know, we're only a colonial state. You can do what you like. And the evidence is that he didn't even pass that decision through his own cabinet. So um, the secrecy has continued. Who knows whether it's worse. In in some ways it might be worse because of all the the accumulated anti-terrorist legislation. Uh, the foreign interference legislation, the sort of paranoia about China. And you know, the rise of authoritarianism all over the place, all over the globe, is accompanied by secrecy. I mean, dictators don't, don't like people to know, certainly don't like to be held accountable.
1: Well, let's go over some of those places in Australia which seem to be taken over by the United States. I mean, they've been there for a while, but it is increasing. How serious do you believe it is? Look, I think
3: it's very serious. I mean, the brilliant book by Clinton Fernandez, which is called Sub-Imperial Power, in other words, Australia merely merely, uh, agrees with what colonial authorities, the United Kingdom, the United States, uh, tell us. We've given up on being independent and autonomous. We've already got a contract with the port of Darwin to be controlled, as I understand it, by the Chinese. We've got um, 2,500 American Marines on rotation in Darwin. Most people don't know too much about that. There are, there are B-52 nuclear-armed bombers at the RAF, RAAF base in Tyndall. And most important of all, the, the Pine Gap defense facility, sometimes called a listening station, is huge. I used to think it was a small, small development in, in the middle of a desert, but in, in fact, it has offices, office space as large as the Melbourne cricket ground, and it gives much freer access to American, to U.S. congressmen than it does to any Federal politician from from Canberra. So those are all part of the the apparent (laughs) preparations for war, or better still, a better called our um, policy for to to give Australians security. And uh, you know, most commentators say that the claims about security are um, fraudulent and and don't um, don't amount to much uh, when you examine them.
1: Another issue that people often don't believe when you say it is that, well, what is the the danger of China? We've got the US with 175 military bases in 70 different countries, including, of course, you just said ours. China's got one, and people say, well, that can't be true. Well, it is, isn't it?
3: Oh, it it certainly is. I mean, of course, China has expanded its military very considerably. Of course, China's economic power is soon going to outstrip the United States. And that's what America is frightened of and will use any means to stop that. But none of that proves that China is in any way a threat to Australia. The fact that Australia's economy has survived incredibly well because of largely because of Chinese purchases of our iron ore and, and, and coal. It seems to be, it's like, you know, that expression, you don't kick a gift horse in the mouth, and yet that's what the paranoia about the, the, the yellow peril, that's what it used to be called, is, is all about. We have to learn to live together. The climate change catastrophes are going to proceed by decades any arrival of a nuclear submarine. That's another reason why this AUKUS policy is, is absurd.
1: And it seems to have been swept under the carpet and the, the fact that we paid $5 billion to France for the shutdown of their submarine deal. Now, that's
3: another part of the secrecy. I mean, that piece of secrecy started off with the very obvious deceit, characteristic deceit of Scott Morrison. He... Deceived the French, and so we and, and cuddled up to the under pressure, went with this um, UK much more expensive, much less certain arrangement to buy American submarines and then then possess British manufactured ones. I mean, there's a there's an absurd story of um, defence non procurement, you might say, which the public don't know about mostly. Tony Abbott wanted Japanese submarines, if you remember. And
0: then mm. Malcolm
3: Turnbull said no, the French, the French ones are a better bet. At which point the, the deceitful Scott Morrison says, oh, we'll, 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 "We'll drop the French and we'll go with the Americans." Nobody ever knows what the, the extent of these uh, the, of the costs of, of these wretched policies. People don't have to take it from me; you just need to watch a rerun of Four Corners of this Monday of this week. Clearly, even the chief of the Navy was, was left it's dumbfounded, in particular by the, his sense that we would, we've never had uh, crew, let alone commanders, to run a nuclear submarine. And it looks, and it's very uncertain, that we would ever be able to get them. Even if these nuclear submarines are delivered, uh, there's no guarantee that we'd ever find the the crews, to, to run them.
1: And also another issue that people might not be aware of is the gearing up for war here in Australia with the number of facilities and factories, mostly in country towns, that are manufacturing anything from ports to bushmasters. And it is quite substantial now.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of my quarrels with, with all these policies is that There's hardly any talk about a well thought through policy to promote peace. The examples you give of um, regional factories and regions manufacturing military equipment is part of the policy that says we want to become the 10th biggest exporter of arms in the world, not the 20th, which is what we which is what we are at the moment, it's all completely associated with the commitment to violence as a way to solve problems. And even when people like Penny Wong talk about peace, it's almost always as though it's, um, it will be achieved by the deterrence acquired by massive force, by vi- violence. There's, it's as though in my terms there is a, an illiteracy about nonviolence. As a, as a means of policy, you've got you've got the same arguments that, that I'm making now. If you look at the strategic defence review that came out, I uh, think earlier this week.
1: Well, I characterised it as an uh, offensive review and an American review.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean, the main thrust of the review is that the Australian defence forces <coughs> need to get ready to fight a war in space. There's a commitment, an assumption about the value of violence in every paragraph. In a way, we're saying that um, cyberspace warfare, what they call electromagnetic warfare, all, it's, all, it's all different kinds of warfare that Australia must, be, must participate in. And yet the existential threat to life on Earth is coming from, from climate change, what I call the militarist mindset mostly within the ears of men, but sometimes of women, the militarist mindset says that there's, there's no other way to um, run things except to have the biggest stick. And the biggest stick might be uh, the latest satellites f- flying around in space.
1: And as you've said, climate change is a really big one for all of us in a way, you and
3: I are trying to have a rational argument about this, but in some ways what is being proposed in these military settlements is deeply offensive. You've got reports of um, something like 380 million people around the world facing starvation. Reports that the the life expectancy of people in a chronically poor country like Somalia is 54 years. You can see the the, uh, the fact that something like 700 million people are now refugees, people on the move with nowhere to go. And, and we've got deliberations about spending uh, $386 billion on on some nuclear submarines. In humanitarian terms, it's deeply offensive.
1: Well, you don't need to go to Somalia to foreign poverty, do you?
3: Well, no. I mean, it's, uh, we'll, we'll see what the budget about it, uh, no. The the extent of poverty in this rich country, the extent of homelessness in this rich country, needs to be addressed. I mean, how do any of those people uh, feel about that when they're told that their security will be provided by the purchase of a nuclear submarine? It's not only absurd; it's offensive. If I look also at the other feature of violence across the country, namely the extent of domestic violence, I wonder why the concern about nuclear devastation, which I subscribe to, which I agree with, which is called 90 Seconds to Midnight, there was a discussion about that um, uh, last week in the launch of the Everett Foundation Journal, 90 Seconds to Midnight, the Doomsday Clock. But when I've interviewed people and women, leading women in the Middle East, they say, well, one of the reasons we can't get, we're not anxious about nuclear devastation is that we face 90 seconds to midnight every night, such as the wide extent of of domestic violence, that we we don't feel safe every night. So uh, the point I'm making is that we need to link the concern with violence at all levels to the very real threat of from, from nuclear annihilation.
1: And then you go back to policy of violence to Palestine 75 years ago with the Nakba.
3: Well, of course, I mean, that's a very good point. 750,000 people were driven from their homes, 500 towns and villages, Palestinian towns and villages, were erased from the face of the earth so that nobody could identify that they'd ever been there. And now the policy of the right-wing, religious-dominated Netanyahu government is to repeat the Nakba, to repeat that terrible tragedy. The so-called international community, of which Australia is meant to be a part, Seems to shrug its uh, shoulders and say this doesn't really this doesn't really matter.
1: Yet you have the UN for the first time actually commemorating the Nakba. But it's all right. That's just words, isn't it?
3: Yes. Well, but but of course they're not in in Israel. You're not allowed. That's a, that's illegal. That you could be punished for trying to remember what happened in 1948. And yet. In the same breath, the great effort that goes into acknowledging um, Israel's Independence Day, and one wretched, ill-informed Sydney council in Randwick tried to raise the Israeli flag. I mean, in other words, who cares about killing Palestinians and locking up um, and manacling small children? It's uh, again, it's. It's not a matter of legality and illegality. It's just, in, in, in humanitarian terms, deeply offensive.
1: Well, you sort of think if, if this humanity is going to continue, there has to be a change.
3: I try not to despair. You know, I've faced so many defeats, <laughs> I'm sure. But, um, you know, it's, um, you push, you're always pushing the wheelbarrow Concrete up a steep hill, but that's and occasionally on, on a Friday evening you have a small victory. We we have to uh, persist. I mean, particularly in a rich, privileged country like this, we should be able to achieve so much if we had a vi- developed a vision, a vision for the future in in alliance with our our neighbours in the, in the Pacific and in Southeast Asia. That's this is where we live. This is where we're located. This is where we. And, and cooperate together.
1: Well, we must be sticking out like a sore thumb, I believe, with all the the Pacific neighbours, including New Zealand. We're sort of, we're not part of that. No, I
3: don't quite. I think there's a deep conservatism. It's obviously, you only have to look at the terrible voices opposing the voice, that there's a deep-seated racism. It's, it's a pretense otherwise by People like Abbott and Dutton, that they've always worked hard for indigenous people, pull the other leg. That's why we seem to um, to stand apart. It's, it's very disappointing. And we can only, maybe Radio 3CR needs to achieve a lot more than it does. We try. <laughs> you try. You do very, very well.
1: Thank you so much.
3: Okay, Jan.
1: I've been speaking with Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees as al approaches.
4: If you're a charity or community group looking for office space or a co-working space, Ross House has rooms of different sizes available, from 15 metres squared to 100 metres squared at affordable prices. Many charity groups already call Ross House home, so if you're interested in joining a vibrant community or working towards social justice and environmental sustainability, please visit rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650 1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter.
1: Next, I'm speaking with Nora Mansu from Australia-Palestine Advocates Network on the week leading up to Nakba Day. Nura, the first time the UN has commemorated Nakba Day, we could say, well, why has it taken so long and why this year? So why
4: has it taken the UN so long to commemorate the Nakba? Because practically the UN was one of the parties that is responsible for the creation of the State of Israel. And um, it was, um, you know, back in 1948, organizations like the U.N., like the Red Cross, many other journalists knew what was happening in Palestine in terms of uh, crimes against humanity. And these organizations, sadly, at that stage, made the political decision to turn a blind eye and to overlook what was happening in Palestine. But currently, 75 years later, we have organizations, multiple, countless civil society organizations in Palestine. But also Israeli organizations plus international organizations such as Amnesty International Human Rights Watch and United Nations representatives that are coming out and saying that what's happening in Palestine amounts to the uh, war crime of apartheid. So now with the world being able to see what is happening in Palestine and not just organizations, but also everyone, you know, thanks to the media revolution, social media revolution, and free access to information. They can no longer hide the reality of these crimes in Palestine. So everyone now sees and knows that what happens in Palestine is apartheid, it is a war crime and there's crimes against humanity that are, that are being um, executed by the Israeli government and Israeli soldiers. And therefore the United Nations can no longer ignore the you know this situation and there's a continuous call to action from civil society organisations, a growing call to action from civil society organisations globally that are asking for the UN to take um, a more active role in terms of uh, remedying these uh,
1: injustices. But to get those member states of the UN to act, even though you've got this commemoration, but you've got countries, particularly in Europe and America, who are adamant that they won't do anything about it. How do you change that?
4: The key to change lies in the grassroots. And at the political level or the decision-making level will not make any changes voluntarily unless they feel that uh, the people in the grassroots is pressuring in that direction. And what we've been seeing recently in the last at least five years, we've been seeing a gradual increase in support for the Palestinian cause worldwide. So... As the masses uh, globally are more um, keen on seeing justice delivered for Palestinians, um, the decision-making level can no longer ignore that.
1: Well, we've got the Australian government who's is not um, doing much for Palestine. How do you address it here?
4: The Australian government needs to be consistent with values that basically it champions. So And it needs to be consistent with promises that it it has made to their uh, electorate. What is happening in the space of Palestine in terms of whether the Australian government is um, doing enough? Of course, it's not. We know that, you know, UN voting patterns should be better when it comes to Palestinian rights. And we know that the Australian government has uh, blocked criticism and investigation into Israeli war crimes before. And while there has been uh, a shift uh, in in the foreign policy when it comes to Jerusalem compared to the previous government, and that is obviously a welcome change. However, we feel that it's not enough to tackle serious uh, questions and issues that are happening on the ground, such as the ongoing apartheid and victimization of Palestinian people. So there needs to be more done in this space to ensure that Israel is held according to international law.
1: Do you believe that the grassroots here in Australia is now much better informed than it was, say, five or ten years ago?
4: Uh, Absolutely. I feel that not not only the grassroots in Australia is better informed, we feel that it's better equipped in bringing about real change when it comes to Palestine. The grassroots here in Australia, if you look at, you know, two years ago in May 2021, we had 20,000 people show up to a Palestine Solidarity Rally. People are more vocal, they're more active, and they are more determined in seeing real change and not just empty promises when it comes to Palestinian rights. Palestinian people, just like any other people, like they were Ukrainian, like any other people deserve to live peacefully in their ancestral homeland. And that's what the um, Australian grassroots movement is determined to see. And a just, you know, just peaceful living means the right of return, it means that Palestinians will inevitably Uh, return to their homeland
1: and live there peacefully. And what events have you got organized in the next week or so to commemorate al Nakbar?
4: You know, and this this basically uh, reflects or this is how, you know, we spoke about the grassroots movements in Australia and how that growing support translates and it's being translated by having a National Day of Action on the 13th of May in which Solidarity groups and organizations are holding various events and initiatives from rallies to vigils to screen, a film screenings to commemorate the 75th Nakba, which is the catastrophe uh, in 1948 when the Palestinians basically lost their uh, land, homes, families and, and you know, lifestyle to um, Zionist militias that later on established the state of Israel. So there's, on the 13th of May, there's a National Day of Action. We've got events happening in seven states, uh, on the same day, same time, so that people here in Australia can all come together and, um, and raise their voice against the ongoing injustice that the Israeli government continues to perpetuate against Palestinians and demand that the Palestinians return to their homes, which is, you know, also a right that was acknowledged and recognized internationally and by the, by the United Nations as well, after 1948. So if this is a uh, right that's recognised internationally, including the, the United Nations, why are the Palestinians still not allowed to go back to their homes? This is mainly our, um, our demand.
1: Well, finally, Nura, what does Nakba mean for you personally, living so far away from your homeland? And I'm sure that you've got family still occupied. Palestine?
4: Yes, Jan. So the Nakba personally to me means internal displacement because my family is from uh, 1948. So my family, when my parents' families were um, uh, driven out of their home towns and their homes in Sha'ab uh, and in Safad, they were forced to flee from these villages into neighboring villages. Both my father and my mother's families were forced out of their homes at gunpoint, um, and they were driven out of their towns and villages. It's always the hardest bit to talk about the personal story, yeah? Uh, right, uh, so for me, the Nakba means loss of land, but also loss of family, loss of uh, social structure. My father, family who's from Safad, was forced out of Safad in 1948, and then they became internally displaced people. My grandparents survived, uh, like, square massacres and uh, all of the assaults that were perpetuated by Zionist militias. So on a personal level, it's an unresolved business, obviously. And what it means to me is that it's just the ongoing element of the Nakba. It's really hard to ignore because it's, it's, it's not just something, it's not an event that happened, an isolated event that happened back in 1948, and then it stopped. It's an event that happened, but they also set up systems and structures structures that ensure the ongoing victimization and that, you know, to maintain this kind of imbalance and privilege, basically, that they created for Jewish citizens of Israel.
0: Kafirs are Palestinian scarves. And they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas. And all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From
6: the traditional black and white kafiyas to an array of modern designs. All scarves are
0: $35 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to
6: kufiyas.org.au, that's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au,
0: a 3CR supporter.
2: Next, a tribute to Bruce Haig, who died on April
1: the 7th from his friend, Dr. Alison Bronowski. Alison, I've read that Bruce was a diplomat, an adventurer, artist, writer, a humanist, a romantic, and a man with deep love of his country, who mourned its fading ideals and values. Which was the Bruce you knew?
5: All I've awesome. known Bruce for years. Had him as a member of my... Australians for War Powers Committee for a couple of years until late last year when he said, oh, look, mate, i got to go to Vietnam. I've got to get out of Australia. I want a break. I want to go and do something else. And we all understood we were sorry to lose him because he was a very lively and active member of our committee, terrific writer, had heaps of stuff going all the time. He got a real fire in his belly about Orcus. hated Orcus with a passion. Having had experience in the army himself and having a long time as a diplomat too, he just found Orcus too much and wanted to resist it with every part of his capacity, which he did. But we also realised that his through life was very different from many of ours and that he was going to pursue it his own way. I mean, as people will have realized, he came out of a very tough Anglican school in Perth where he was put up with, with all sorts of bullying and corporal punishment and so on. It was a nasty place. And once he got out of it, he was determined not to to conform to any of the rules. So he was a jackaroo, he worked on an oil rig, he was into the army, got out of that, got himself an education, got into DFAT 1972, and of course DFAT, with his talent for sending people to problem places, sent him to various, to Islamabad twice, to Saudi Arabia, to Indonesia, and of course, most notably to South Africa, where he arrived at the same time as the world was beginning to thicken at the prospect of apartheid. Mandela had been arrested and put in jail. And I mean, a perfect place, perfect place for Bruce Haig because he didn't take orders from anybody and he was his always his own man. So there he was, his own man. He meets Donald Woods, the, who ran the local newspaper. a Journalist put under house arrest for his articles. He supports Steve Biko, and the year uh, after, the young uh, Mandela, charismatic, the Mandela supporter. Bruce became very close friends with Steve Biko, who was a, a leading supporter of Mandela. A young man, charismatic speaker, had a big following, and of course was a thorn in the side of the apartheid regime, which the following year, uh, after Bruce met him in 1977, was killed after being tortured. and It was a, a shocking thing, and actually it became the catalyst for the overthrow of apartheid and the resignation of the government and everything that has followed since then. But what what Bruce did was he got Donald Woods, the journalist, out of house arrest and spirited him out of the country in his own car, which had diplomatic plates, and and Donald Woods was dressed as a priest. They, I mean this is this kind of stuff. Bruce went in for it a big way. He was good at it. There was another Another person, he also claimed that that Bruce got him out and I
1: wouldn't be so surprised that he did. Bruce said proudly, I'm a people smuggler. (laughs) Once he left DFAT, what was his last then?
5: He left the year before I did, actually. I left because I couldn't work for John Howard. I think Bruce realised what was coming and he left for the same reason. He did what a lot of people then used to do for a sort of a retirement job and to keep their superannuation coming. I mean, Bruce had a succession of wives and children and so on to think about. And he went to the Refugee Tribunal, Refugee Appeals Tribunal, uh, where a lot of other people went. And he there (laughs) made friends with the refugees and opposed the government policy, which was to reject their and he was was busily approving their applications which he could be and was overruled by the minister to the point where he couldn't stand that much longer and so he got out of there and did other things including writing a couple of books which were very good standing for election as an independent in Mudgee, and living on a farm in Mudgee where he grew olives and grapes, and he made terrible wine. He used to. <laughs> the property was called Gunny Moo, and the the brand of the wine was Gunny Moo. And I tell you, the red was undrinkable. But he used to give it to his friends. That <laughs> that lasted for a few years. Then he went to live in Orange to be closer to his former wife and two daughters. He could see them and he used to sort of hang out and not not be distant from them, even though he was divorced from Jody. And it was from there that really he he still had friends all over the region who he used to go and see. And that was when he decided that it was time for him to go to Vietnam. He, he said, "What's he, what are you going to do? Oh, I don't know. I'm going to teach young people how to get on in life. Oh, yeah, we thought. But we knew... That even before he left, it, that he wasn't well. He was having a few health problems, and in fact, his family tried to dissuade him not to go, but he did, and he became quite unwell while he was there. He went, had to go to Laos to renew his visa, and it was while he was in Laos that he, in fact, did get some proper medical advice, and they found that he had cancer and that can be fatal very quickly or very slowly. In Bruce's case, it was rather more quickly. And so his family, two daughters, wife and uh, ex-wife and, and his sister, formed a, a, a posse to Vientiane, came and got him and took him back to Australia. And that was where he died. On Friday, and as it happened, he had been born on Hiroshima Day. Born on the 6th of August, died on the 7th of April. He was a man who made his mark in all sorts of ways.
1: Thank you so much, Alison, and they, they sound like very fond memories of Bruce.
5: We all miss him profoundly. Australia is the poorer without
1: him. And you've been listening to a tribute by Dr. Alison Wynoski for her friend Bruce Haig, who died on 7th of April.
6: 3CR is Radical Radio.
4: Through our on-air content and
0: community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change?
7: We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession. $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and
0: $300 solidarity. Call 03
1: 9419 8377, that's 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Shaya is a Palestinian from the West Bank currently studying here at Melbourne University. Donna as Nakba day approaches where do your thoughts turn to about what happened in your homeland 75 years ago and its impact particularly on your family at that time?
6: I think the first thought that I have as a Palestinian as someone who lives in the West Bank and someone who experiences Israel settler colonial system every day. It's just really frustrating to know that this has been happening for over 75 years and nothing has changed. Everything has been getting worse. And everyone is just sitting and watching and not doing anything. Just the other day, I watched the EU Commission President's speech about Israel Independence Day. And, you know, you realize how implicit the world is with Israel. I'm um, glorifying Israel genocide and ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, ignoring the only withstanding apartheid system in the world in the 21st century, on um, ignoring all of the international violations and, cr- and international war crimes that Israel is committing against Palestinians. It's not only that they're ignoring that, they're celebrating that and they're glorifying that in the name of what, what is supposed to be the only democracy in the Middle East. So I feel like it's really frustrating it really is enraging that despite everything that we're going through, despite the world seeing what we're going through and what's happening as Palestinians and this ongoing process of ethnic cleansing our existence, um, no one's doing anything. They're just actually supporting
1: what's happening. Can I nevertheless take you back to that time? What happened for your family? Um, what, what stories have you been told? Everyone or like most of the people... That I have met and that has
6: lived through the Nakba in 1948, none of them thought that this will last. Everyone thought that they were going to come back to their houses. Everyone still has their house keys. Everyone, if you ask anyone, even the new generations, the stories are, you know, passing through from one generation to the other. If you ask a five-year-old Palestinian boy and say, Ida refugee camp, where are you from? He's not going to say, I'm from either refugee camp. He's going to say, I'm from Nazareth. I'm from a city, I'm from a small um, village there. They're going to tell you exactly where they're from. And they're going to tell you what happened, to their family. They're going to show you um, their house key that they still have. So I think the, the most striking thing that everyone talks about is that no one thought that this is going to last. Everyone thought that they're going to come back to their houses. That, to me, just, and it just passes through from one generation to the other. I think it's it's a bit frustrating that, you know, it's so hard to go back and just, like, to go back to where you came from and to your villages. But at the same time, it also shows and reflects how Palestinians, like, how um, greatly attached they are to, to their roots and their history. And, like, no matter how many years or decades pass, you will never forget and you will never move on.
1: How long have you been in Australia? Um, I've been here for a year and a few months. What was it like when you left? Can you describe? The
6: most consistent feeling that I have been having ever since I moved in here um, or moved here is the fact that my family is there, my friends are there, my people are there, and, you know, there's always a sense of attraction something that you can see, something that is unexpected, and just moving around the corner. And you never know if your family is going to be safe or if your friends will be safe. You just never know what will happen. You never know when you're going to hear, when someone's going to call you and tell you a friend of yours or a loved one of yours just got killed by the Israeli colonial forces. You never know that. And that sense of insecurity and helplessness is something really hard to overcome. And something that lives with me every single day because I know that, okay, I'm here, I'm safe. But I know that that sense of safety is something that every single Palestinian back home throughout the circle of Palestine do not have. Be killed at any given moment because you are Palestinian. And that's it. There's no other reason for that. Just being Palestinian makes you a target.
1: Exactly where in Palestine does your family live?
6: So my family lives in um, a town called Tukor in Bethlehem, Bank.
1: And what stories are they telling you day to day in Bethlehem?
6: I think, you know, as someone who lives there and just like my whole life, I've never, I'm never surprised by anything. Um, when they call there's a raid in the town. When some of my friends have been arrested and put into administrative detention for the past eight months now. Um, You know, when my family is going from one place to the other and there's, like, a sudden checkpoint, all of a sudden, like, an unexpected one, Um, when settlers are passing cars, that pass through the streets. You know, there's, like, all kinds of stories that have become just a daily occurrence to us. And you're never surprised, but you're always appalled by that.
1: It must have been very difficult for you to settle into... Australia, absolutely relative quietness and calm compared to what you left?
6: Yeah, I think to me the first thing that kind of, you know, was a bit of a cultural shock, like I've traveled before, I've been to places before, and everywhere I go, and it doesn't matter where I go, the sense of safety and the sense of freedom of movement, being able to move freely from one place to the other, to just walk around without having a soldier pointing the rifle at you, this will always be or feel foreign to me because I'm not used to that. So it doesn't matter if I live here for 10 years or 15 years or two years, that sense of being able to just move around from one place to the other without any checkpoints, without any soldiers, um, without the smell of tear gas or sudden assault on on Palestinians, that will always be foreign to me. And that will always be something that I aspire to see in Palestine, that I aspire that every Palestinian feel in our own home, in our own country. To just walk safely, not be a target just because you're Palestinians or just because you look Arab. Yeah, just like moving around freely. But this is probably my biggest kind of favorite thing
1: here, you know, just to move around, no checkpoints, no soldiers, I'm safe. You intend to go back once you have finished your studies? Um, yes. Yeah.
6: Because I feel like, I feel like it's really hard to be away from um, the danger and the sense of being the target. You know, just having like your family and loved ones, facing that by themselves. It's not easy for me. Um, I want to be there for them in case anything happens. I want to be able to support anyone. So as much as I like being here, it's also really difficult for me to just you know, not go back there and live there, because they know that this is what the Israeli government wants. It wants Palestinians to leave Palestine and never come back, and that is not something that I support or it's not something that I'm willing to do. I feel like the mere existence of us as Palestinians in Palestine in itself is a form of resisting the settler colonial entity, is a form of resisting the ongoing attempts to ethnically cleanse us from the land. And to also fight against the uh, whole um, land without a people, for a people without a land, against all these lies and you know propaganda they're trying, they're trying to kind of tell the world all these lies. So I feel like going back to Palestine is a form of resistance, despite you now all the dangers, despite all the threats, despite everything. If you are there, if you are supporting your people, this is resistance, and this is something that they don't want.
1: What's your message to Australia, to Australians on Nakba Day?
6: I feel like it's about time, after 75 years, it's about time that the Australian people push their government to at least do the minimum, which is recognizing Palestine as a state. This is like the least thing that they could do. Um, They need to push their government to stop funding the only withstanding apartheid regime in the world, the subtle colonial Legal entity that is literally ethnically cleansing Palestinians from their homeland in the 21st century. The Australian government has been like a prominent supporter of the Israeli regime, and the amount of war crimes and human rights violations that Israel commits on a daily basis is insane. And the fact that people are willing to allow their government to support such practices and such governments—that should stop. And people should. Push against that. The tax money should be there. It's not something that is giving to an entity that is prosecuting and suppressing and oppressing innocent people who are only fighting for the right to live.
1: You're a student at Melbourne University. Will you be able to commemorate Nakba no. Day at the university?
6: So um, we have done a few events at the university, but. I would say the turnover is not great because unfortunately we have a lot of Zionist presence on campus and people sometimes are scared to speak up, although I have noticed that a lot of people do know about the Palestinian cause. At least they know the basics, they know who's in the right and who's in the wrong, but unfortunately what I'm seeing and what I'm noticing is that people are afraid to speak up, to be vocal, because we have a Zionist presence that is really strong, and sometimes people are too scared for their careers or their future,
1: and their future pathways. Wish you well, and hope your studies go well, and eventually you return home. Thank you so much. And I've been speaking with Dana Shau, a Palestinian living in the West Bank, but currently studying at Melbourne University.
6: Join the National Day of Action on May 13th to mark 75 years since the Nakba, also known as the Catastrophe, when 80% of the Palestinian people were ethnically cleansed from their homeland and over 530 Palestinian villages destroyed to create the State of Israel. Today, Palestinians on a daily basis are still resisting the loss of their homeland and human rights, insisting on their right of return and sharing their truth. Join them in their fight for justice and a free Palestine at 1pm Saturday, May 13th at the State Library. That's 1pm Saturday, 13th of May. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
1: Finally on Tuesday home time, the second and final part of the history of the small South American country of Ecuador. With PhD candidate... Sesha, Achilles, Leccakis.
0: We see this period where there's finally a bit of unity in Ecuador, and again you have this period transition again liberal conservative, but there's not as much fighting for once, and Peru sort of backs off. In the meantime, there's no conflicts in in you know the latter part of the 1800s. See the turn of the century come. Ecuador is still an incredibly poor country. And the main concern now is not so much the conflict between the elites because now the elite in Ecuador has coalesced. It's an oligarchy like in any other country in Latin America. So, you know, the liberal conservative difference has pretty much whittled away by this point. And by the 1910s, 1920s, you have, you just have an oligarchy that is more than happy to put aside its whatever moral differences they once had. In the independence wars and afterwards and they are now concerned with the uprisings of indigenous populations the zambo populations which are still of course present and you know everyday workers in ecuador who are fed up with having to live in serfdom it's a terrible existence that ecuadorian people have to endure because of that see a very interesting figure come to power in 1934 now his name is jose maria velasco ibarra Um, he's just known as velasco ibarra and he's a very, very interesting figure who manages to win um, elections in 1934. So he is a pretty much someone who tries to play off all the different factions in Ecuador against each other. At least this is how he begins his term of rule in 1934. At first, he tries to keep the oligarchy on side. He says he's going to rule as a moderate, that he's going to implement some reforms friendly to workers. He does abolish the encomienda system, so he abolishes that serfdom law. So finally, the workers are actually free. So this is actually a major step that he implements. But eventually, he sees that he's not going to be able to do much if he does what the oligarchy wants. So, you know, he tries to push through other reforms that the oligarchy just says, if you do this, we will finance and opposition to you that will overthrow you. There are very open threats made against uh, Velasco Ibarra. And so he begins to become a little bit more independent in terms of what he's doing. This, this figure dominates Ecuador really from the 1930s up until the end of the 1950s. And what he does in 1941, essentially really to stave off an oligarchic coup attempt that's coming against him, he declares a state of emergency and invades Peru. Peru at this point had the leaders that were again beginning to lay claim to Ecuador. They hadn't done anything, um, as in they hadn't actually crossed the border or engaged in skirmishes, but Velasco Ibarra takes this opportunity. You know, he says, well, there are leaders in Peru who are again making these rumblings that they're going to try and claim Ecuador, and he invades Peru. So this allows him to declare a state of emergency. He can rule by decree and the oligarchy at this point is unable to do a lot against Velasco Ibarra. Unfortunately, the invasion does not go well. The Peruvians again, they still have a better trained army. They have they just have the human power to overwhelm um Ecuador's forces. Um, oh, Velasco Ibarra's forces are pushed back into Ecuador and what we see happen is quite a cruel policy, I suppose, is implemented by the major powers of Latin America and by the United States to sort of control this unruly government in Ecuador. So a year after, in 1942, the Peruvians force Ecuador to a a negotiation in Rio, in Brazil, and this comes to be known as the Rio Protocol. Peru, which is backed at this point by Brazil, by Argentina, by Colombia, and by the United States, they're all present they say Ecuador has to cede its Amazonian territory to Peru. And Ecuador has no choice but to do this. If they rejected it, there was the very real possibility that Ecuador's trade would be cut off from Argentina and Colombia and Brazil and the United States, and that would have just collapsed Ecuador as a country. Not to mention, Peru would have likely invaded and successfully taken over Ecuador. So we see Velasco Ibarra, essentially cede a large part of the Amazonian territory to Peru in 1942. And this leads to a lot of resentment. But Velasco Ibarra is a very clever man, and he channels this resentment towards the oligarchy. He says... He announces a new policy platform two years later in 1944 called the National Resurrection. So he says he's going to implement reforms for social justice for indigenous people in Ecuador, for the vast majority of poor Ecuadorians, and that he's going to go after the corrupt oligarchy. He said the oligarchy is the reason that Ecuador lost the war against Peru, that, you know, they tried to destabilize my government. They hampered our war effort. These are all true statements. That is exactly what the oligarchy did. And it resonates with a lot of Ecuadorians who have had to live under this oligarchy. Firstly, as you know, the conservative liberal oligarchy and now as this unified group of capitalist country. So Velasco Ibarra goes after the oligarchy. He arrests a lot of really high-profile wealthy businessmen in Guayaquil and in Quito, the capitals, and he begins to actually court the support of communists. Now, he himself is not a communist. As I said, he's quite an opportunistic individual in the sense that he will ally himself with whoever is willing to support him. But by this point, he's quite fed up with the oligarchy, and he sees that not only to maintain power, but to effect any sort of change, because he did have a certain moral compass, that he was going to have to take these drastic actions. This sort of campaign against the oligarchy filters into the military as well because he also takes aim at a lot of the high ranking generals, um, that he blames for the losses against Peru in the 1941 war. And this does not sit well with the military, of course. And we know what the military, what military institutions are like in Latin America at this time. And they overthrow Velasco Ibarra in the mid-1950s, in about 1956. They, They tried to at previous points, but he always managed to wrangle some sort of support from different parties in the Congress, from different social movements, workers' movements, to grip onto power. But finally, Velasco Ibarra is overthrown Um, He is consigned to history in 1956. But we see an even more radical figure come to power in the election. So the military doesn't intervene and establish a military regime at this point. There were elections in 1956, and we see Carlos Arosemena come to power. Now, he was also an interesting figure, like Velasco Ibarra. He was a wealthy Ecuadorian and businessman. He had ties to the military institutions in Ecuador. But He is also quite nationalistic. And what ends up doing him in is his refusal to become an anti-Cuba voice in the 1960s. So Carlos Arroz Semena does not break ties with Cuba at the um, OAS summit in 1960 that the U.S. pressures every country in the continent except Mexico, Canada and Ecuador to sever relations with Cuba. So Aroce refuses to do this, and this is ultimately what gets him in trouble with the United States. And the US um, later that year in 1960, engineer a military coup against him. So he's overthrown. The military regime becomes hostile, of course, to all the communist forces in Latin America. It severs ties with Cuba trade relations with Cuba, and we see another military regime, you know, in the vein of many others across the continent, for example, in Brazil and even in Peru at a later point in a lot of Central American countries. And this military regime lasts close to 20 years 1960 to 1979 and for the majority of this time it's led by Guillermo Rodriguez who was a leading military figure you know throughout this whole period of the 1950s um, and then into the 1960s and he is incredibly brutal of course against left-wing progressive movements and against indigenous peoples as well so if we look at the death Figures. They're not as high as, say, Chile or Argentina. They're closer to Brazil in terms of the number of people killed in the aftermath of the coup. So we're looking at between 500 and 1,000 people, which is still, you know, it's a shocking amount of people, but if we compare it to the tens of thousands killed by Pinochet, it's not as high. But there is a consistent campaign throughout this 20 years of military dictatorship of harassment and terror and violence against island and Amazonian indigenous communities, which, of course, form the backbone of the resistance. I mean, these communities end up becoming quite significant bases of support for Velasco Ibarra and then for Arosemena as well before he's overthrown. They're not happy that this military coup has taken place. Guillermo also takes a number of... Lessons or courses, military courses at the School of the Americas um, in the United States. So he, you know, he's very intimately linked to the U.S. military establishment and their involvement in, for example, Operation Condor. Ecuador is a part of Operation Condor. You know, they target communist dissidents and left-wing dissidents and have them killed or, you know, extradited to the United States where they spend pretty much the rest of their lives in jail. But in 1976, Guillermo Rodriguez he begins to sort of buck the U.S. control over his country, as some generals very rarely have done in Latin America. And he says, chiefly, because, of course, at this time, essentially what keeps the military in power is the discovery of oil um, off the coast of Ecuador. The military regime is able to modernize its army with all of this oil revenue coming in. But, of course, U.S. oil companies are dominant in Ecuador's economy, and the major oil deposit at this point, which is off the coast of Ecuador, is called Texaco Gulf, at this point, the Ecuadorian military only has about a 23% stake in that project. So over 75% of all of that wealth is going to US multinational oil companies. But in 1976, Guillermo Rodriguez demands that the military regime take a 51% stake in the Texaco Gulf project. There's a lot of speculation as to why he did this. I think the most plausible explanation is that the military regime essentially wanted more money for itself and was sort of sick of the U.S. taking three quarters of what was, you know, vast amounts of oil money at this point. But of course, this doesn't sit well with the U.S. government, which is financing Rodriguez and the military regime. And they finance an internal coup within the military against him. So he's overthrown in 1976 after making this demand that Ecuador have a majority share, that the Ecuadorian state have a majority share in the Texaco Gulf oil field. We then see a transition to civilian rule. This is much like the case of Brazil, where there's a voluntary cessation of, of control of the army over Ecuador and we see elections organized for 1979, and we see another leftist come to power, unsurprisingly, after 20 years of right-wing military rule, and his name is Jaime Roldos. And again, he reestablishes ties with Cuba. He begins courting other sort of more independent countries around the world, begins to trade a lot more with Asian countries, just try and wean Ecuador off its dependence on the United States. But what happens and this is widely regarded to be an assassination uh, on the part of the United States, orchestrated by the CIA. He dies in a plane crash. Jaime Rodos, in 1981, just two years after his election, dies in a plane crash. Everyone knows that the United States orchestrated this. They still deny it, but there's no one else who feasibly could have done this or could have wanted to do this really at this point. Um, Because again, Rodos was not being that dramatically leftist compared to a lot of other leaders, both in the past in Ecuador and those leftist leaders that would come in the future. But regardless, he's assassinated in 1981, his plane crashes, he dies. And we see conservative parties take control over Ecuador and they absolutely destroy the country's economy and its social fabric. So they implement, of course, extreme neoliberal policy. They sell off everything um, because, you know, even the military regime, as terrible as they were, they still controlled at least some institutions, you know, public institutions, hospitals, some public works. This government, these governments in the 1980s and the 1990s, sell off all of that. Water services pretty much stop in large parts of the Amazon and the Andes. Electricity as well pretty much just disappears because those utilities are sold off for a profit, and no one actually comes to reassume responsibility for providing those those utilities. So, you know, it's it's absolute destitution, again, for the majority of Ecuadorians. It's not helped by the fact that there's uh, the 1987 earthquake, 5,000 people die. There's virtually zero response from the Ecuadorian government. We're talking about terrible levels of poverty and inequality and misery. There's two more wars with Peru in the 1980s and the 1990s. These are at a far lower intensity than previous conflicts, but still just goes to show how unstable Ecuador has become again because of neoliberalism and the real Sticking point that leads to, that leads to true crisis is the government's decision to dollarize the economy in 1988. So they get rid of the original Ecuadorian currency, the sucre. They adopt the US dollar as their official currency and this leads to massive unrest across Ecuador because most poor Ecuadorians find that now with the new exchange rates, they cannot exchange their sucres. Their sucres are worthless and they're going to get nothing in terms of U.S. dollars. The entire livelihoods go up in smoke because of this de-dollarization, uh, sorry, this dollarization, um, which, of course, is profitable for U.S. interests in the country and it streamlines U.S. oligarchic penetration of oil, for example, in the country, and later mining of gold and other precious metals as well. But this leads to massive unrest, and in particular, the spearhead of this unrest is Corneille, which is um, the Confederation of Indigenous Peoples of Ecuador. Now, I think we can make the assertion that Corneille is the, the, the most well-organised indigenous federation in Latin America by far, perhaps with the exception of MAS in Bolivia, but Corneille has consistently been able to draw millions of people into the streets to protest when there are, you know, anti anti people, anti indigenous, austerity related policies implemented by Ecuadorian regimes. And in nineteen eighty eight uh, nineteen ninety eight, sorry, Cornet does just that. They they announce a massive protest and they actually storm Ecuadorian parliament in 2000. So, you know, this unrest goes on for two years, violence, you know, we're talking hundreds of people killed across these years by the Ecuadorian authorities, but they end up storming the government palace in Quito. But unfortunately, there's also another factor here, and that's that um, there are some military officials that also take it upon themselves to intervene and perhaps stop Corneille from taking power, and they also stormed the government palace in 2000. So then we see this very interesting, intense sort of negotiation take place between some members of the military and leaders of Corneille. And Corneille, of course, can't take control of the country if the military is against them. The Indigenous people are well aware that they could be killed if, you know, this sort of relationship becomes any more tense than it is. And there is an agreement to return to elections, and this is... Pushed by the military, which wants to sort of reestablish the status quo a little bit after all of this this unrest and the crisis and the overthrow of the government, we see neoliberalism return until 2007, when we have Rafael Correa take control. Correa is a pivotal figure in Ecuador's recent history. He's really become the face of Ecuador's progressive movements and progressive governments since 2007. He's inspired by Hugo Chavez. He's inspired by Fidel Castro. And his Alianza Fais movement comes to power with with a majority in 2007 and he implements some really, really progressive reforms in Ecuador. Um, poverty, for example, has decreased from 36% to 22%. Inequality decreases really dramatically. Significant social welfare expenditure brought about, um, chiefly because he nationalizes the oil wealth of Ecuador. So all of that oil wealth that was previously being looted by U.S. companies now is in the control of the Ecuadorian state, and it is spread out far more equitably now across Ecuador's different, um, you know, different regions and different people. So a really progressive leader, very independent in his foreign policy, fiercely and publicly denounces the US government for its interference in the internal affairs of, for example, Venezuela and Cuba, fosters relationships with a lot of governments around the world, in particular China becomes a very key partner for Ecuador and actually drives a lot of, infrastructure development and trade development for the country. It's a very good relationship that Ecuador establishes with China. Of course, the, the elite aren't going, to, aren't going to stand for this. And we see a coup attempt in 2010 where the national police attempt to overthrow Korea. They fail. But we we quickly see, you know, all of these different movements coming to the fore. There's right-wing conservative movements that are going against Korea now. There's even Cornei, that indigenous organization, begins protesting against Korea because he does, it's true, he implemented um, a regressive um, water privatization bill. For some regions of the country, and that was chiefly because Ecuador was having difficulty paying back its debt. The indigenous organisations were against that, and they protested against Correa. And all of this uh, sort of accumulates. And by 2017, Correa stands down, um, as is you know in the constitution, in the Ecuadorian constitution. And we have Lenin Moreno take over the party and and win the subsequent election in 2017. But we see a complete reversal of Correa's policies. And I think this caught Correa off guard as well. Moreno goes straight to the IMF, implement um, structural adjustment programs and austerity. Um, He takes on new debt from the International Monetary Fund. He begins persecuting pro-Correa members of the Alianza Pais Coalition. Correa ends up having to flee to Belgium because they accuse him of kidnapping. And he still, he can't return to Ecuador because of those charges that are still in place. Um, Now, of course, they're bogus charges. There's no evidence, actually, that he's kidnapped anyone. There's all this sort of tangential and, you know, really sort of speculative stuff relating to, you know, silent or anonymous witnesses that no one can know about. Um, And, you know, a supposed business partner that was quite prominent during the Correa governments that was supposedly involved in the kidnapping. But there's there's nothing concrete. This is plain political persecution. And Lenin Moreno becomes deeply, of course, unpopular. And we, again, we see the resurgence of protests and violence um, between chiefly, again, Cornelia, the indigenous organization, and the military and the police, which are brought in to, to sort of restore order. And by 2021, Ecuador is in significant crisis. And we have an election where, unfortunately, the, the left-wing movement aligned to Correa loses the election. Now, there was quite intense, um, U.S. interference in that 2021 election, including through virtually the engineering of a third candidate, Yaku Perez, who, who was essentially put there to siphon votes from the Correa, for the, from the pro-Correa coalition. And it works. And we have the victory of Guillermo Lasso, who is a banker he's incredibly conservative and reactionary in his policies and he has been one of the most unpopular ecuadorian leaders in history his his popularity is now sitting at you know single digit numbers according to some polls because he has just implemented extreme neoliberalism again and indigenous protests became particularly prominent in 2022 and we saw again you know this was a period where close to 100 people were killed by the police that's how serious the violence got COVID-19 ravaged Ecuador. We saw, and it's still ravaging Ecuador, you know, body bags dumped in the street, dumped in public toilets because there's no room in the malls or in the cemeteries. And now uh, Lasso has also been unable to face organized crime in Ecuador. And this is a new development in the country um, where we've seen local drug trafficking groups really, take control of large parts of major cities, some remote regions as well for the production of cocaine um, and marijuana as well and Ecuador again and this is interesting because we can take it back through history when we were talking about those maritime trade routes Ecuador has become a really critical point for the international drug trade uh, particularly for Mexican and Colombian cartels so now there's actually also competition between Mexican and Colombian organized crime groups for control over Ecuador's ports and commercial and different commercial locations and facilities so you know we've had people beheaded Openly in the street as a part of these inter-gang warfares. We've had uh, just a few weeks ago there were three Ecuadorian girls who went on on a holiday um, to a beach. In northern Ecuador and they were all murdered and dumped in a shallow grave by drug criminals. It's a really, really unstable and insecure country now and the neoliberalism is, is only helping fuel that fire and there is wide, wide speculation that um, Guillermo Lasso's cabinet and or at least a lot of members of it are also directly involved in this sort of illicit activity and connected to these drug traffickers. Now, In terms of what's going to happen next, it's difficult to say. There's not gonna be an election, you know, still for another two years, more or less, but there have been attempts to impeach Guillermo Lasso, and they look like they're gaining traction. It looks like it might actually happen with the Ecuadorian opposition really taking charge and being quite proactive in this measure. And they also won the local elections this year. So for mayorships and and those sorts of local government positions, um, the pro Correa coalition, It was a wipeout. They easily dominated in the elections against Guillermo Lasso and his allies. But it's difficult to say what's going to happen. Guillermo Lasso has tried to invoke a state of emergency unsuccessfully. But, you know, if he tries to do that again, it could very well mean that we're going to see some sort of military takeover or some sort of state of exception so that the elite can hang on to power. But I would say that, you know, we have this really strong indigenous movement, that is still protesting. We have the pro-Korea political opposition, which again has a very progressive um, left-wing vision for the country. They want to return to those days of Rafael Correa uh, and Correismo that was so beneficial for, for so many Ecuadorians that had previously been downtrodden. And we are beginning to see coordination between those two, between the Correa parties and QUNE, the Indigenous organization. So I'm hopeful um, you know, that come the next election, Guillermo Lasso will not win. Pop with a popular vote. He cannot. He's so unpopular at the moment. But we always have to be aware and conscious that the elite does not play by the rules. They have their own rules. And that the United States is, of course, very interested in maintaining Ecuador as an ally because they have so few uh, left in Latin America. Ecuador is one of the last right-wing governments left in Latin America at this stage and in South America as well. So it's really critical for the United States that Ecuador maintains... Its current neoliberal trajectory, also because all of those oil interests on the part of US corporations, are, you know, would become direct targets of the socialist government or government if it came to power.
1: I'd like to conclude, Sasha, with the connection between Ecuador and Australia, and that's Julian Assange.
0: Yeah, and you know what, I'm, uh, thank you for mentioning that because that completely slipped my mind, but that's exactly right. And this just shows what sort of a leader Correa was and what sort of a country Ecuador became under his leadership, where it had the bravery and the courage and the moral capacity to protect Julian Assange in Ecuador's London embassy against all sorts of pressures from pretty much the entirety of the Western world. But Ecuador would not relent. They protected him, they protected his rights as a journalist and as someone who exposed the truth of US subterfuge and violence and regime change operations around the world. And I'm, I'm confident that one day Ecuador will become that country again because that is what the people of Ecuador want fundamentally. That is what they deserve. And Ecuador really was a regional and a global leader in these sorts of issues. And it says something, I think, also about our government, that tiny Ecuador on the other side of the planet defended one of our citizens even when we wouldn't. And that's true independence from the United States and true independence in foreign policy and following your values as a movement and as a country.
1: And Sasha gillies lakakis We'll be back on the programme at the end of the month talking about another small country in South America, Paraguay.
0: The Europe Justice Commission is the first formal truth telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. From Thursday, April 27 to Friday, May 12,
4: Uruc is holding public hearings to question Victorian Government Ministers, senior bureaucrats and Chief Commissioner of Victoria Police about injustice against First Peoples in the child protection and criminal justice systems.
6: You can watch the
0: hearings online or make a submission at urucjusticecommission.org.au A 3CR supporter. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au.
5: A 3CR supporter.
0: Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Corey Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne.
1: A 3CR supporter. Speaking earlier with Emeritus Professor Stuart Reese about Australia's preparations for war on the coattails of the US with China, He talked about secrecy, deception and maintenance of public ignorance. You don't need to know. Now looking at another aspect of this, how the mainstream media, particularly the ABC and SBS, are contributing in the form of those it presents as unbiased independent commentators. John Kirapel, Newcastle-based historian, theologian, social commentator, and published author of three books. We'll look at two institutions which contribute to that perception of independence and non-partisan. John, can we begin with ASPI, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Great favourites with the ABC and SBS. Who are they and who are those behind them?
7: Yeah, ASPI is the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and it was established about 20 years ago under the Howard government. It was supposed to give um, unbiased advice on military issues. It's gradually drifted away more toward being under particularly US influence, and so it's no longer giving that unbiased advice. It's it's quite an organisation. It's 64. People are employed there. Headquarters in Canberra, but it also interestingly has a second office in Washington. Describes itself as an independent, non-partisan think tank that produces expert and timely advice for Australia's strategic and defence leaders. But really, when you want to know how independent something is or a body is, the old line is follow the money trail, and uh, that's what I've done, and uh, it's very interesting. Where the funding comes from.
1: How difficult is it to follow that money trail?
7: Interestingly enough, and this is what always amazes me about our journalists who just swallow this, this information they're given from these organisations, is how simple it is to uncover the money trail. And with uh, ASPI, it's, it's very easy and uh, on their website. Lot of it, but then you can go to another website. The Australian government has a transparency portal, and when you do that, you find extra information as well. But even on their own website, it's, it's a two-minute job to look at their sources of funding. Found that the main source of funding, as described as core funding, is the Department of, of Defence, four million dollars. Then the other federal government agencies, over two and a half million dollars, to 2.620 million, and there's overseas government agencies, that's an interesting one, that comes up to near $2 million, and then the private sector funding is three-quarter of a of, of million dollars. A lot of that is defence industries funding, so um, obviously you're funding something, you want to get something back from it. But that was on their own portal, and when you went to the transparency portal, you found that... Um, the US State Department was three quarter of a million. The US Department of Defense was over 200,000. The US Embassy in Canberra was 400,000. the Brits got in too, they had 437,000. And then you came to all the you know, the arms manufacturers Lockheed Martin, Naval Group Australia, Northrop Grumman, uh, Raphael, Raytheon, Saab Australia, Thales Australia, Australia, all donating. Money to ASPE. so it's little wonder that uh, given those sources of funding, you get uh, the advice from them that uh, you would expect from them.
1: What do you know about the people who work there, and in what capacity?
7: People that work there. Peter Jennings, of course, has been the uh, the main person that uh, you see on always on, on television. But uh, Peter Jennings has a real interest in the, in the US. His bias is toward, very strongly toward the US and, and you'd expect that you're going to employ the sort of people that, um, that are going to give you the information that you, you really want. And it, what the information given out has, is been very effective. As I say, it, it's twisted Australian policy toward China in particular. Bob Carr, the former. Premier of New South Wales and the Foreign Minister says it provides a one-sided, pro-American view of the world and speaks of how that places us at danger and at odds with our Asian neighbours. But um, Peter Jennings has been the main day, the number one that you remember, Melbourne, you had with the age there, the, uh, the red alert theories and Lavina Lee. It's very much connected um, with Aspie, and she was one of the five independent experts that the uh, the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald used in, the, in that, that three-part series on, on, on Red Alert. So these people are, are not the independent sort of people you'd want, and yet they're the ones that even our public broadcasters, the ABC and SBS, are turning to all the time to give us this supposed information and analysis on uh, what's happening particularly in our relationship with China
1: So how does the organisation actually work? Is it projects? Is it more than that?
7: Yeah, one of the major uh, projects that they have is the Cyber Policy Centre Now this is to influence policy debates in the Indo Pacific. There are uh, nine projects and surprisingly not, five of them are centred on China. As you know, in the whole military area, cyber is becoming increasingly important. Some are saying the next war could be a cyber war. So the ability to protect your own cyber systems, but also to hack into others. But nine projects, five of them are, are centred on China. And that disinformation, and when they look at the disinformation, it all emanates from surprise not China and Russia, Uh, only Western nations, Spain gets a mention for a a trickle of disinformation, but nothing is mentioned of any US disinformation, even though it's well documented, particularly by Stanford University, among others. Nothing is said about uh, disinformation emanating from the US.
1: How does that disinformation work? What are we being told that is untrue?
7: Well, the best dis- disinformation is that which appears to be unbiased, or which appears to be non-interested. And uh, there's particularly one on uh, Xinjiang, which is in the, in the west of China, and there's been a lot of talk on human rights abuses there. And uh, yeah, there are human rights abuses that are in any any place in any country, uh, including our own, but um, there's a lot of satellite uh, technology was used, and I'm sure we'll be familiar with satellite technology, which supposedly proved Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction. But in this case, the satellite technology showed that uh, the Aspie alleged there were 380 internment camps containing hundreds of thousands of forced labourers. And of course, since then, a lot of this work has been done by Jacques Shames. And uh, she's been able to show that uh, a lot of these camps have been shown to be schools, clearly identifiable sports ovals, apartment blocks, and even a five star hotel just because they had a, a wall around them. They're said to be, or just trying to keep the way out rather than keep the in, they're said to be internment camps. But uh, this is all dicey uh, research the China Defence Universities Tracker, named 32 academics. And they these were then led to the Australian Research Council, the Academic Research Council, naming these 32. And uh, they then inspected them, researched them, and found that 30 of the 32 were cleared of any national security issues. But, of course, you're you named. The association sticks with you, the tar sticks. So, these, these people, and a lot of it was linked to their nationality, their, their background, perhaps as Chinese or as Asian. So, this is dangerous stuff because it it, it can ruin people's uh, lifestyles. And I uh, saying earlier, Jacques uh, James was speaking of saying well, that people of Xin, Xinjiang should sue the uh, as before because it's now because of boycotts so that are put in place against products from Xinjiang. It's costing people their jobs. It's costing them their livelihoods. It's costing all this and it's purely because um, of propaganda and these people are suffering as a result of that.
1: I'd imagine that any other enemy of the United States also gets targeted. I'm thinking of Iran or Russia, North Korea. Are they targeted as well?
7: Oh, yeah, well, the, uh, certainly uh, the target there, although the concentration is primarily on China because of the, uh, the the size of China. China is now the largest economy in the world by some measures. Uh, it's the largest trading nation in the world. So this is a, a threat to uh, the U.S. hegemony, which has been in place particularly since the end of, of World War II that's now under under threat and uh, there's what's called the Thucydides Trap which was named after a Greek historian uh, who talking about Sparta and Athens a long time ago and uh, the rise of one at the expense of the other and what the reaction to a falling power, to a rising power is and we're seeing that at play now. The, the US wants this unipolar world, wants to maintain what it calls the rules-based international order. Of course we set the rules and uh, you've got to obey them or there are consequences. There's no rules-based international order. Our politicians throw this word around too. The only international order is that by the UN and it's not the US-led rules international order.
1: I'd imagine that there are similar organisations as ASPI in other countries.
7: Oh yes, yes, uh, definitely. Um, the major one um, in the U.S. is the uh, CSIS, which is Committee for Strategic and International Studies. This is a larger version of of ASPI, but there's certainly a strong connection to Australia. That connection is mainly through a contributor that you'll often find on the ABC and, and also. Uh, in the age of the Sydney Warren Herald, Major General Michael Ryan, Nick Ryan. And he is well and truly connected to CSIS, and you'll never get any acknowledgement of that. As I used to always say to my school students, check for sources of uh, if there's any bias in the sources that you're using. But uh, this seems to be beyond a lot of our our mainline, mainstream journalists today.
1: Well, you do find out a lot about his background, but nothing about CSIS. Is that what you're saying?
7: Oh, well, I found out what CSIS is. is, uh, It's a lobby group for U.S. policy, and uh, it's established in the U.S. It has a large number of of U.S. former politicians on it, and, and present politicians were members of it. And, of course, there's, that is to be expected. There's nothing particularly wrong with that. Uh, they're, they're supporting their own interests, but it really needs to be acknowledged by the fault is really with um, the ABC and, and the, the Age and Herald not acknowledging that, that Major General Ryan is um, heavily involved as the Australian-based chair of this organisation, which is promoting, obviously, US foreign policy,
1: well, when he's on the ABC, SBS, or in the age, who is he introduced as?
7: Oh, he's introduced as, as a military scholar. Uh, he's introduced as a writer of a book on 20th century warfare. Uh, this is how he's introduced. There's no, no link made to CSIS, which uh, and it's, it's just basically what you do is you, you always check your sources and, and name, name them. Their bias. So this is something which is probably journalism 101. It, uh, there's no acknowledgement of this.
1: Well, you're saying there's an Australian chair, and that's Mike Ryan or Mick Ryan. How many other chairs are there?
7: Oh, look, the, the, he's the chair, the Australia chair in Australia. That was inaugurated um, just over a year ago now, in January 2022. Uh, there's an Australia chair. There's a whole series of chairs in the CIS. There's the Australia chair. There's a Korea chair, a Japan chair, an Asia program, a Southeast Asian program, U.S.-India policy studies. Their emphasis is very much on the Indo-Pacific. This is a whole part of the, of the tilt to the Indo-Pacific that um, U.S. foreign policy is on about at the moment. But he's joined in Australia. By uh, Jim Caruso, who is was a, advi- a senior advisor. He was with the US Department of State, including being a foreign policy advisor to the US Indo Pacific Command, uh, charged for affairs at the US Embassy in Canberra, to ASEAN. Lavina Lee, I mentioned earlier, is a part of the Red Alert team, council member of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, senior fellow at the US Studies. Center. So you're going to get the advice that you'd expect. That's what you're, you're going to get. But on the, the U.S., the head of the president and CEO is, uh, of, is John J. Humray, right? who's a former U.S. deputy of, of defense. You've got the most famous name, of course, is the former U.S. Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Sam Nunn, who is the Senate Armed Forces Committee, Chair Paul Ryan, who is a former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, a whole number of people I could go through. The current Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who is a senior fellow in the past. Former Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, was also. Kurt Campbell, the current National Security Council Coordinator for the Indo-Pacific, acted as a senior Vice President of International Security Program. You can see the the interests that the organisation represents. That needs to be made clear to Australian listeners and readers that that when you're quoting someone, you're using someone as a source. This is the background from from where they come. CISIS once again is funded by a lot of these same ones I named with ASPI, the uh, military. Uh, Funding at large government benefactors, US, Japan, the government of Taiwan, Australia is only a minor contributor, but the large military sources, Northrop government again, there's energy sources, BP, Chevron, Exxon, Mobil, more military, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, General Dynamics, and Raytheon. And then there's a lot of funding comes from IT companies, because as I said earlier, a lot of the Modern warfare is, is through IT, and you see you've got uh, Facebook, Computer and Communications Industry Association, Microsoft, and then banking interests, of course, also uh, large uh, funders, Bank of America, Corporation, Citigroup, JP Morgan, Jason Company. You're going to get this information which you'd, you'd expect from such backing, but we need to know that. do. You can't present this information as though it's unbiased, as though it hasn't got its own interest um, to pursue.
1: You say you can't not tell people, but they're very good at not telling people.
7: That's, that's right. That, that's not right. You, you shouldn't be, as a, as a public broadcaster especially, You're, you've really got to name the interests of, of your sources you're supposed to be given you know, there's always a question about the ABC or it's too left wing or too right wing it's supposed to make clear, very clear this is where the the interests lie in this person who's, who we're communicating with who's presenting, this is their their background and a full, full disclosure that's not the case
1: Have you in the past actually tried to Speak with journalists at the ABC or SBS and inform them, I suppose, because they obviously don't know of the situation.
7: Well, I would hope they don't know. Uh, one would—the would, uh, only would other alternative is they do know and they want to uh, to not disclose uh, the uh, interests of the one because they. It, it, coordinates their own interests to, to facilitates what they're on about as well. But, uh, yeah, I have, uh, and you normally get a desultory mm-hmm. sort of response back. It's, it's um, rather that uh, I've, in a sense, given up drawing some of the time, but uh, from time to time I will pursue a, a journalist and, and say, are you aware of, of this? We do not get uh, any or very desultory sort of response back.
1: Well, that's all very well, but we're moving into a fairly dangerous situation now, aren't
7: we? We're in a very dangerous situation because we are now... The idea that we're moving through AUKUS has is, is really been a directed war toward China. We're getting these you know, reports on red alert that within the next three years, we could be at war with China. This is dangerous stuff. and not only in our newspaper, you've got... Um, to um, uh, four-star generals in the U.S. recently, saying that look, we could be uh, at war. General Mark Milley and General Mike Minahan are saying we could be at war with China within three years, uh, and this has been echoed by a lot of the uh, representatives in Congress there who are saying the same thing. The red alert. Uh, in the age and the, and the heralds, so it said Beijing could strike within three years. And our policies are increasingly in danger as what we're pursuing is is AUKUS, and uh, there's a whole lot of illogicalities in this as far as I can see, because the threat is immediate. But we're planning to have submarines for 2045, 2050. This is uh, a logical... Inconsistency, it's, it's just the Defence Force Review, which has just come out, um, is talking about this immediate threat, but uh, AUKUS is talking about something, you know, 20, 25 years down the track, but we are getting ready for uh, a war, we're getting increasingly enmeshed in the US Policy with, it has been described, and Northern Australia has become a giant US base with kangaroos hopping on it. From 2011, the uh, pivot to the Asia Pacific led by uh, President Obama came out here, he spoke to Parliament, Uh, soon it was followed by the forced posture agreement in 2014. Uh, the rotation of two and a half thousand Marines constantly through Darwin, uh, giving away our sovereignty in terms of can war be waged from here? Well, how much say has Australia got in, in US policy, even if they're using our, our territory? B-52 bombers based at the RAF Kindle base, resources in place in Darwin for fuel and maintenance facilities for US aircraft and warships, we've long had Pine Gap, Northwest Cape, all of these things, are, and we don't know anything about Pine Gap. We haven't got access. Our parliamentarians haven't. The US congressmen, they have access, but not our parliamentarians. You know, I think <laughs> old Malcolm Fraser was right when he warned that Australia needs the US for its defence, but only needs defending because of the US. The situation we've got into, China are not going to Attack! I can categorically say that their whole history over thousands of years is uh, non-aggression. Their aggression is internally. If, if the mandate of heaven was lost by a dynasty, then uh, they got overthrown. But extending overseas, invading place overseas, they've never done it. In the 15th century, they had ships which dwarfed those of uh, the Europeans. They went around the world, but they never invaded anywhere. They have the military means, but not their interest. Currently, of course, they're the major trading nation in the world. If you're trading, you don't want disorder. You want things to maintain the peace. You want a peaceful existence between nations. But uh, So they're not going to attack anyone. The whole thing of them attacking Australian shipping, a lot of this, Defence Forces review is premised that we need to protect our shipping lines. Well, we're not—it's uh, illogicality because our main trade, of course, is with China. So, what are China going to be sinking—the Chinese ships bringing goods to Australia and taking taking our minerals back to China? It's it's that's pure illogic. And even if it were true, we're getting the wrong submarines—we're getting eight submarines in the never never, where we could have bought a whole series. Of uh, cheaper, just as good submarines, and I'm going on expertise of people who know these things about submarines. We could have got submarines for five billion dollars each. We could have splurged, got twenty of them to protect Australian shipping lanes. But instead, we're getting eight submarines to sit them off the coast of China as a part of the U.S. containment policy. And uh, and of course, if China finally do respond they're going to respond by sinking what not one of the u s ships I'll sink one of the allies of the u s because and and then the, the u s is not obliged to come to australia that uh, ANSUS is an agreement where Australia will be defended by the u s says no such thing totally absent from that document. they may consult with us but uh, if you're Chinese you're wanting to remove that uh, pressure off your shipping lanes then you're not going to sink one of the U.S. ships, you're going to sink one of the Allies' ships. And this is, this is the sort of, of course, that doesn't happen, but we're running in the danger of happening if we're sitting ships off the Chinese coast. Imagine if the Chinese were ship- sitting their, their ships and their submarines off the coast of California or having a base in Mexico. Or you know, this would be, there would be an hour or all. But this is exactly what we're doing to China. We're trying to encircle it. Uh, through bases, through through Korea, Japan, down through the Philippines, now into Australia. This is dangerous stuff, uh, trying to contain China. But this is the policy we're we're pursuing at the moment.
1: And of course that policy, John, further impoverishes a wide section of the Australian public.
7: Well, yeah, it's uh, we're told 368 billion dollars that's an enormous amount when you place that next to the state three tax cuts as well we're going through we're, we're talking about three quarter of a trillion dollars that we we're, we're losing unnecessarily. think of the the problems we've got uh, with to uh, hospitals with housing with uh, the social problems uh, that we've got how much we could do with that sort of money, $368 billion. It's, it's just simply huge. Um, and that's opportunity cost. That's, that's foregone. And so we could have better defence options for probably uh, a third of the of the price.
1: Okay, well, I thank you again, John.
7: Always oh, good to be with you again. And I've
1: been speaking with John Kirappell.